Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single person to think about their work and unpack the rest. Happy mid-July, everybody. Today, we are bringing on a voice that longtime equity listeners may recognize if they were here in the very beginning, the author of the supervised newsletter and former equity founding co-host, ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Lindley. Hey, how are you? God, it's all grown up. It's really weird. It's Well, it's not us crammed in the back of the TechCrunch office in a room that's the size of like <laughs> half a Harry Potter closet, you know? I think there's just a few thousand miles between us now than there were back then as well. I mean, I used to literally walk to the TC office to record and it was like my favorite part of the week. So it was just like walk through Soma and stuff and just enjoy yourself. And now we're on Zoom, which is not nearly as fun. No, no, it's not. So... I want to do a little bit about you just to kick things off. So you were a founding member of the equity team. And the reason why I wanted to bring you back on is because of all my friends, you're one of like two mathematicians. So when I think about the math folks in my life, it's not a huge list, you know, and you have also been working on an AI focused publication called supervised, which you can find at supervised.news or if you're boring, supervised.substack.com. (laughs) <laughs> and I was one of the earliest subscribers, I think. I'm very proud of that. Yes, you are. You and I ended up writing about some of the same stuff when we put this show together, Databricks and Snowflake and building out the LLM stack. And I thought it'd be a great time to sit back and kind of just think through some of the questions that are out there about where we are in AI and what big companies and small startups are doing. So Lindley, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to explain to people the history of LLMs And then I want you to correct me. How does that sound? (laughs) I'm probably going to get it wrong as well. Excellent. So I'll fail first and then you can fail second and we'll just call it a team effort. So there was a method of building neural networks that used recurrence, which allowed some outputs to be used to impact inputs for the same nodes. And that was used for a while. Later on, these began to take into account a thing called attention or the ability for neural networks to weight inputs differently. Then in 2017, Google put out a paper on transformers, which showed that you could build a powerful neural network by using only a form of attention called self-attention. And I believe that was called attention is all you need. Kind of a seminal paper, a bit like the Bitcoin white paper. It's a thing we're going to be talking about probably for a very long time. So what is this self-attention thing? Well, paraphrasing from a Google Brain paper from June of 2019 entitled Standalone and Self-Attention in Vision Models, self-attention is defined as attention applied to a single context instead of across multiple contexts. Put another way, the ability of self-attention to directly model long-distance interactions and its paralyzability leverages the strengths of modern hardware and has led to the -the state-of-the-art models for various tasks. And I think if I'm not being totally off base, the Transformers paper was essentially the the kickoff point for what brought us to today's modern LLMs. Fair enough? That's pretty good. Like like a, like a B, like a B plus, like a B minus, like put me in college grades here. I mean, I, I think you pretty much hit all the notes. So, you know, when you're talking about asking an LLM a question to get an answer, the first thing you have to do is convert this sentence into a vector, which is a, you know, a series of data points. And that vector goes into this magic embedding space at that where there are a lot of other vectors and it's trying to grab the nearest one. So you're thinking about storing concepts inside a series of numbers and being able to do actually pretty basic math operations on them. And when you have a sentence, some words are more important than others. Some parts of speech are more important than others. You know, why are puppy and kitten closely related, but dog and cat are not, right, to a certain extent? How can you more evenly distribute that information across the space? So when I'm doing this search, I don't accidentally grab, like, instead of puppy, I don't accidentally grab dog, I grab kitten instead, because the way that stuff is encoded is weighted differently. Yes. And so we've gone from recurrent neural networks 
to the introduction of attention to self-attention only models, bringing us to Transformers. And then that births essentially LLMs, which came out around 2018. So the, the thing that I want to start with is, are, are you surprised by how fast we went from the old system to the addition of the concept of attention to the Transformer paper to the tech we have out in the market today? I don't know if that has been a, a compressed time frame or one that is relatively standard for this type of breakthrough in the ML space. I mean, I think if so, like a lot of people compare this to the iPhone moment, um, right? And conceptually, the stuff that's in an iPhone is not going all the way back to like 2009, right? If I'm getting this right. 2008, um, 2000. Yeah, it's uh, one of those years. Yeah, 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 yeah. First, first iPhone. Um, like there's, there's nothing brand new in the iPhone, but it was all put together in a way that was compact, seamless, worked really well. So instead of being like a marvel of science, it was a marvel of engineering. And, you know, obviously a lot of these concepts around neural networks have been around for a very long time, but we just haven't had the compute power to keep up with it. And obviously that has changed over time. You know, you had the ImageNet competition with uh, Jeff Hinton, which I believe was 2015. If I'm getting that right, I can correct that later, which showed that, you know, actually GPUs are great at this, which, you know, using parallel processing is, is a much more powerful way of doing this. You had the Transformers paper come out in 2017, which introduced like actually like attention is really useful and really great for doing this kind of encoding and decoding. Bert, you know, we've been doing fine tuning for a very long time. Um, we've been working with language models for, for a considerable amount of time. Bert is a classic example. Bert was on Hugging Face for a very long time. That's usually where people pull that stuff down from. You know, you've seen that stuff deployed in the larger platforms like a Databricks and things like that for, for a while. So the, the, you know, when you look at something like GPT-3, which was, you know, predates ChatGPT and ChatGPT was what everything blew up. Those things are more marvels of engineering than marvels of science necessarily, which was this idea that we can just introduce a lot of information and think about models that are very large and are able to store a lot of information in like a single place that you can retrieve it from. That evolved over time with ChatGPT. I mean, I think, you know, again, going to this idea of a marvel of engineering, the, what made ChatGPT amazing was that it's just an amazing user experience. Yes. It was a skin on GPT-3.5, which is an iteration of GPT-3, which is an iteration of GPT-2 that allowed people to use it for the first time. That was what a lot of people were running into. But the this actual progress has been like relatively incremental over the past several years. I mean, OpenAI has done an amazing job of of producing these these incredibly sophisticated models that, you know, you're cramming trillions of tokens, which is, you know, it's basically parts of speech and words and things like that into some of these more modern models. But from a kind of technical and science perspective, the stuff is is not, you know, drastically new. The difference is we have really powerful chips to do a lot of this training. And we have a lot of really powerful devices that can inference them cheaply. Like, I mean, not cheaply, like it's expensive, but it's more straightforward than it used to be. And we have the infrastructure supported and, you know, cloud-based tools like uh, Azure or AWS or Databricks or things like that. Yeah, I guess I'm a little surprised at how you're discussing the progress of neural networks in general, because from my reading and prep for this, it did feel like the Transformers paper and the movement to an all-attention or self-attention-based method 
was a pretty big shakeup and not not like an iterative change, but more like almost like a directional shift. We're, how- we're, t- we're talking about the LLMs. We're, we're, we're going from, you know, 2017 post. Right? Oh, okay. So, okay. Um, okay. 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 So, I mean, that, like, I mean, if, if we want to go back, like convolutional neural networks have been around for a considerable amount of time. And that was the way of thinking about it yeah. for a very long time. It's kind of funny, like the more people I talk to, it's like there there's more interest in convolutional neural nets than there was when everyone kind of was focusing on transformers because we're kind of hitting a wall in the performance of transformers to a certain extent for a lot of reasons, like, you know, context windows, context windows being like how much information can I cram into a single prompt? There's a, there's a limitation to that from a, from a performance and compute perspective. So there's an open question of like, have we hit the wall on transformers now? Yeah. And what else can we squeeze out of it? But it, it did represent a different way of thinking about this idea of encoding and decoding information. Okay. And concepts from Mdon. So we're we're talking about like neural nets versus like transformers. Like the incremental progress post transformers, I think, has been relatively straightforward. I think. No, no, that that makes absolute sense to me. I completely agree. I appreciate the clarification on the iPhone moment point. If people weren't there watching that, the way that Jobs pitched it was: it's your iPod, it's your phone, and it's your email in one device, and it fits in your pocket. And like, if you watch that presentation, it is as you said, all stuff that we had before but not brought together and presented in that way. And that's why I think, you know, when people think about chat GPT, I bet you 98% of people who use that don't know what GPT-3 was, but they certainly know how to use this product. So I think, sure, that's the iPhone moment, but it's fun to see the technology that led to it. And then also kind of built us to what is now one of the most popular pieces of technology I think ever made, just in terms of how many people use it around the world and how much dust it's kicked up. Is that why really you built Supervised? Just thinking out loud, just because there's this moment of of such rapid change and evolution that you kind of want to explain it? Yeah, I mean, I think that for this industry, I mean, obviously, it's evolving so fast. And there's new techniques coming out on a practically a weekly basis. I mean, it's hard to keep up with the papers these days. There was just one out of Microsoft not too long ago called textbooks are all you need, which is everyone's talking about it. And right before that, everyone was talking about the megabyte paper from Facebook. And everyone before that was talking about, you know, chain of thought. And, And so this stuff changes so fast that it's hard for pretty much anyone in the industry to to keep up, especially the people that are deciding what to deploy internally and what investments they're making and things like that. And uh, it represents a challenge, you know, not from a highly technical perspective for people that are focused on the actual deployment of these models, but like, what am I buying? Like, what should I actually use internally? My my head of data ran up to me and said, I need 50 weights and biases licenses. Like, why Why do we need experiment tracking in the first place? And, you know, why? You know, I, ha- I have these decisions that I'm making that have, uh, you know, several hundreds of thousands of dollars at stake and can be taught over timelines of two to three years. And if I make the wrong one, then I've really screwed up. Yeah. Um, and, and so I thought that I felt that that audience there, which is incredibly a, a niche one, obviously, was not particularly well served. You know, you have everyone talking about the tools, everyone talking about how cool things are, everyone going over the papers. But what are people saying behind doors about these tools specifically about their future? Will this company be around for a long time? And honestly, I figured the best way to do that is just talk to a lot of people in the industry yeah. um, and talk to as many people as possible because there's there's not so much of an incentive to just sort of come out and say like, hey, like, ah, but there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of noise and people need to know whether or not is Langchain a viable business model. It's a very powerful framework. It's very popular and it does represent a potential you know, future of how these LLMs are deployed. There's also a company behind it. 
should there be a company behind it? What does that com- what should that company look like? What kind of investment should it be taking? Those are, those are all questions that you know need to be answered, not necessarily by the the heavy duty technical person, but the person that's you know deciding do we deploy Langchain internally? Yeah. You know, it's fun to watch people go from talking about the, the underlying tech to the consumer application to now, it seems to be the, the major conversation around LLMs is how they're going to fit into the enterprise. And we're going to come back to the LLM stack in just a minute, because I want to talk about how Databricks and Snowflake are taking differing approaches to it. But first, we're going to take a very quick break, and then we're back with more with Matthew Lindley. One thing that we both wrote about recently was Databricks buying Mosaic ML and the recent work done by Snowflake. They bought Neva and some other stuff. Anyways, I was talking to the CEO of Databricks and he was working me through why they bought Mosaic ML. And the LLM stack, as far as I can kind of tell as it exists today, is models which are then pre-trained, which are then fine-tuned and then presented. Is that a reasonably, I mean, obviously we're speaking loosely here, but is that a reasonable stack model? Well, it depends on if you want to build your own model from scratch or you want to use one that's off the shelf. I mean, most if you're talking about deploying existing models, I mean, BERT is still incredibly popular. It's old and and still a, a workhorse, right? But if you're looking at open source models like Llama, which is under a research license for the time being, obviously, though that, that'll change uh, probably in, in the not so distant future, then you're talking about fine tuning specifically. There's, you know, there there are some places where it would make sense for a company to create a model from scratch mm. um, because they have some data exclusive to themselves that they wouldn't be able to find elsewhere. And they have a very specific use case that they're targeting that maybe is not satisfied by some of the open source models out there. That's where something like a mosaic ML comes in and is really powerful, which is the problem of training a model from scratch is not necessarily a highly technical one. It's a compute problem. Like, can I get enough GPUs? How expensive is it? And how should I try and optimize my costs? And Mosaic ML was actually known for making that uh, much cheaper. And that seems to be why Databricks had to pay $1.3 billion for like a 60-person company. Well, private companies buying private companies is always kind of a a fuzzy, fuzzy thing. So, uh, you know, what's 1.3 1.3 billion is may not always end up. I mean, I think Instagram was a good example of this, if I'm remembering correctly, right? Well, because the value of the underlying Facebook stock went down, and so we we used to chart this. But right. a, a yeah. Databricks stock won't change as much in term in value, probably as much as Facebook stock did, because it's not currently publicly traded. But <laughs> it's still an expensive deal, which I think goes to show that companies are really trying to build out uh, their technology on this in the data space. And you wrote recently that and I'll just quote you because why not. Databricks focusing on the end-to-end of machine learning and Snowflake focusing on fine-tuning on customer data and deploying through Streamlit. So to me, like it seems that you know we're seeing companies in the world of, of data take diverging approaches to serving this burgeoning LLM enterprise use case. And when I was thinking about this, why wouldn't Snowflake want to do kind of the full stack? Why not do what Databricks is doing and try to have each piece of this stack that I was talking about in place? I mean, there there are different philosophies. Databricks, when you look at something like a Databricks, uh, maybe to you can squint and see something that looks kind of AWS-y, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, AWS is an incredibly successful model. They don't do everything great, but they do a lot of things really well. And they have products for everything else for someone that just wants to do, wants to make a single purchase. For something like a Snowflake, they they could do all of these things. So, I mean, I think a lot of people that I talked to kind of expected Snowflake to get into vector search in some form or another, which, which Databricks did do. And there was a little bit of hand-wringing in the period before their announcements. They didn't. They, they decided to work with Pinecone, which for something like them, 
they can say, we are just a platform and you guys can handle the sales of this, these types of products. You guys can handle operating these types of products. Uh, you know, we'll be a platform for you. We'll, you know, chip in for whatever that might look like in a, in a partnership. Everything kind of looks a little differently. Sometimes it's, you know, an app store or a discount and credits and things like that, which AWS also does for some of this stuff. And the two companies are, are also just very fundamentally good at very different things. You know, Snowflake is a data warehouse and Databricks is traditionally focused on data science. And it's, you know, historically built off of Spark and, and Lake architecture. And they kind of do this dance where they, you know, break into each other's turf then break out and break into each other's turf and break out. But the DNA in the two companies is is, is quite different. And it's not like there's a winner business model out of this because it's unclear which one is going to be successful because Databricks and Snowflake are clearly the natural acquirers for data and ML companies in the space. They they represent a, an abstraction layer for the data space. Uh, and so this is clearly where the industry is going, but the, the kinks have not been fully worked out and how it scales up. And I think that you know, in the short term, the taking a platform approach is is really smart. It means that they do not have to worry about building a lot of these things internally, and they can remain focused on on a closed number of products. Snowpark Container Services, I think, is is a good example. Which it's a very snowflakey move, and these things are not easy to achieve from a technical perspective, right? So, for a, you know, running something like that requires a lot of work around security and and things like that. But it may be that Databricks' approach to building a kind of more modern data stack and 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 modern interpretation of AWS is, is the right one as well. The the thing is, we have one of these companies is public and one is not. Yeah, I, I know, and I know. We've had a, and we've had exactly three years of data on what the financial returns of uh, of this stuff is. So we'll we'll see, right? It's that's the fun thing about this is it's still up for grabs. Yeah, and I, I think that people rightfully refer to them as rivals in some way, but they they are also very different interpretations of of how the modern data stack should look like. You know, not just now, but but years from now. Yeah. If you want to have a lot of fun, go read the um, Snowflake page on data lake houses, which is a term that uh, Databricks has popularized, and you'll find some top grade intra corporation snark about different models and how they approach certain questions. They're two of my favorite companies to watch, not only because they're they're quite large and growing quickly, but also because they have some of the highest valuations out there on a revenue multiple basis. Snowflake is one of the most expensive cloud companies, period. And uh, I think Databricks is you know hoping to get a similar multiple when it comes out. So when we think about these questions, we're not just talking about them in the abstract. These are powering or possibly impacting some of the most valuable tech companies out there. So it matters is what I'm saying. Well, it's also like a lot of these, a lot of the larger, more mature machine learning companies are, are just sort of waiting to see what happens when when Databricks goes out there. Yeah. If I'm an ML company and I've been around for for years and I'm sort of ready to go public and, and get an exit for my investors or whatever, I, I do not want to be the first one. Right. No, no one does, but but Databricks is obviously the closest. Yeah. Right? Let the larger ship break the ice. If you're in a rowboat, <laughs> don't ram an iceberg. Yeah, exactly. I want to talk about smaller companies though, because I'm I'm curious. The Mosaic ML acquisition hit me because I hadn't really spent any time before the deal looking at the company. And so I'm curious with the people that you talk to, are, are startups attacking a particularly interesting portion of the generative AI boom that is something we should take an eye on? Or are they working kind of across the whole problem space and not focused on one slice of the stack? 
this actually goes back to, you know, 2021 and even 2020, where the way we interact with data started to get increasingly fragmented. Um, this is mostly Snowflake's fault um, because they <laughs> they sort of introduced this, this very accessible and easy to use layer, abstraction layer on top of your data in AWS. And, and that opened up a lot of doors for ways to manipulate and access that data to produce much more powerful results, whether that's an insight out of a company that may have not been historically accessible or something, you know, productized into machine machine learning. So, you know, going back to 2021, we saw mega rounds for companies like Tecton and Weights and Biases and and uh, DBT, Fivetran, all these things are unicorn or, or close to unicorn. Attacking, you know, pick a point on it and there's a company there. Look at the way data is transformed before and after the warehouse. There's DBT. Look at you know what happens when you're trying to work on machine learning models. You have to do all these transformations ahead of time, and you have to you store all that in some way. That's you know a tecton, right? And that's just going to get more intense with the deployment of LLMs. Training is as one thing. Inferencing, I think, is going to be another interesting area. There are some cool companies working there. Modal is one I, I hear come up a lot. But there is also the whole stack for how do we serve these in the first place. So we're all training right now. That's great. Everyone's focused on training. They're training their own models, kind of the foundation models, whether they're fine-tuning their models. It's a lot of excitement. These things have to go into prod at some point and show their value at some point. And there's, you know, there's going to be a whole class of startups that are going to be around serving these really efficiently um, from a cost perspective, from a speed perspective. And if you can think of a use case for a model, walk through the steps that you'd need to deploy that model and use it in the first place, every single step is going to have a company. And then over time, they'll kind of chew left and chew right. And then they'll you know, the, the it'll coalesce around a small cluster of companies. Some of which will get acquired. Some of which, some of which may go public. Some of which will try and go more horizontal. Some will be highly verticalized. It's going to be as crazy as it was in the iPhone era, most likely, and it's going to be twice as crazy as it was in the emergence of the modern data stack from the you know twenty nineteen to twenty twenty two era. So, how long until we see like the supervised fund? I have no idea. I'm trying to do one thing well. Uh, it's hard enough to keep up as is. No, I'm sympathetic to that. And you answered my question, which was, where are we going to see startups play? And then what are they going to do next? And it sounds like at every point in this LLM world, we'll see startups and then they will grow from there, either going horizontally or vertically. So it's going to be kind of everything all at once is what it sounds like. That's the fun part of this is it's, you know, people say it's an iPhone moment. The For the iPhone, we got uh, Facebook and Foursquare. We also had beer apps. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. So it, uh, we should explain what you're talking about, because not everyone who listens to the show is. We'll, we'll skip over the beer app part. No, no. iBeer was great. Fine. I'll explain. All right. So so before people used iPhones for anything, some of the early apps were really bad. And this is, of course, after Apple released a third-party app store, which wasn't at the start of the iPhone. And iBeer was like a beer animation on your phone. And as you like put the phone to your lips as if it was a beer and tilt it back, the level of the beer on your screen would like change as if it was actually liquid. And you're asking me, Alex, why would anyone pay for that? And the answer is, well, there wasn't anything else. You know, there weren't, there weren't good apps back then. IBeer was yeah. awesome because it used like gyroscopes or whatever to tell where the phone was. We thought we thought that was awesome. Different standards. Yeah, well, I mean, I think no one could have really predicted that the killer use case for the iPhone was going to be Candy Crush. Yep. Or Instagram, mostly Candy Crush. Mostly Candy Crush. 
And I think the verdict is still very much out on the killer use case for LLMs right now. It's it's cool. It does a lot of stuff really well. There's some interesting stuff with code generation. There's some interesting stuff with text extraction and yes. summarization and things like that. But we're we're still so far early that the killer use case for this may turn out to be completely different. And we haven't even gotten to multimodal models yet. That's that's sort of on the horizon where you're you're not just thinking about searching conceptually using just text, but what does it look like if I am looking into the same place with an image as well, with data from sensors as well, data that's audio as well. Like what how how am I able to retrieve information that way? And there's also like a whole subclass of, of things powering that, you know, embedding the embedding models are gonna probably turn into a battleground before too long if uh OpenAI didn't kill everyone on price already. But there's just so many areas for really drastic improvement that we were not even close to figuring out what the the killer use case for it is. Okay. This is a brilliant segue into a couple of really short questions that I, that I wanted to ask. So how far can we push large language models? Because one of my favorite things that I've seen thus far is code generation. We've seen this in places like GitHub Copilot and a lot of other models that are now out there. There's an open source version of that too now. Do you think there's going to come a day when we can like, ask an LLM to write us some code and then have the same LLM know how to like execute it? And then it could like learn from how it executes and then improve it and then eventually become like a self-programming wizardy thing? Uh, people in the back are going to start screaming arbitrary code execution, most likely here. But I mean, one emerging area of interest is agents. Um, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with AutoGPT, which most people are kind of playing around with as a, as a toy right now. But conceptually, this idea of... of chaining together actions to achieve a certain arbitrary task is something that, again, LLMs could be suited for. When you talk to people that use Copilot, most of the use cases I hear about are, are sort of writing up tests and summarization, scaffolding, things like that. And one of the interesting questions that that I hear often is for, for some of these more advanced use cases, software engineering being one of them, is, is zero thought just a total red herring? And and the the real value is going to be around learning how to coax out the actual answer. And so it's going to be a little bit more complicated than just being like, type right up this code for me. I see. And I'm going to have to figure out what, not only what techniques do I need to use, but, you know, is it not just, it's obviously not just a single prompt when information needs to go into that prompt. You know, there's some interesting stuff happening with uh, expanding context windows where there was a, a company that was like, we'll put an entire novel into a, a single prompt in order to to get that information, which is that's, could you put an entire programming textbook into it who knows, right? Yeah. There's a lot of experimentation happening, and obviously all this cool experimentation happens in, in the open source community. But I want to remind people we're like seven months in. Yeah. <laughs> so which, you know, obviously it feels like 10 years, right? But we're we're seven months into the chat GPT era. And we're still figuring out exactly how to use them. They've surprised us, these language models have surprised us in a lot of ways and it's a it's a learning curve for everyone in the same way that you know learning c plus plus back in the day was was a learning curve oh i remember that learning curve i ran i ran right into it yeah yeah it's a it's it's a mess <laughs> but i mean yeah we'll you know we'll start seeing it in classrooms right we'll start seeing i was talking to someone just earlier today about how i think they were teaching accessing databases but you weren't allowed to use sql you had to use ChatGPT to write the sql and then oh. use ChatGPT, work through ChatGPT to edit the sql to sort of get at the right answer you weren't allowed to actually like touch the sql yourself so you're sort of training yourself intuitively how to work with these 
language models to produce the right answer to get to those answers faster. But I've also heard people use it for, you know, let me write poetry for a date. Yeah, that's what we all used it for. It was like, write, write me a, an Irish limerick in the style of Eminem's Eight Mile. Like, I mean, like it's, it's, it's funny to have it do whimsical things, but I think that that's just, that's the beer of LLMs. It's, it's, it's like the, the most obvious, lowest fruit, lowest hanging fruit thing that everyone can kind of do or user understand. And it's the next thing that I'm most interested in. So wrapping up our chat about all of this, you mentioned earlier on how we're seeing some diminishing returns on transformers already. I want to say maybe it's not already, but it feels quick to me that you're saying that. So, you know, are we going to see a similar pace of improvement in LLMs or generative AI generally over the next 12 or 18 months as we have in the preceding 12 or 18 months? Or is this going to slow down and we're all going to catch our breath at some point in the next year or two? I keep saying this over and over and I, I hate being the, you know, I love how like CEOs are always like, we're early innings and blah, 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 no, blah. This is not crypto. People actually use this. It, it is incredibly early and, and we're, we're experimenting with techniques constantly. Fine tuning is something we've done for a while, but on LLMs, like, you know, how can you squeeze performance out of fine tuning these, these smaller models? Yeah. How can you use them in inference in the first place, right? Like where, where can I, should I put it on a Raspberry Pi? You know, that's going to require a small, smaller model. I mean, another interesting, really interesting area is, is how does the way you curate your data affect the performance of the model? Do some of these more massive models have you know, contaminated training sets? That's another question that I hear passed around a lot. And then also, you know, how can you be a little bit creative about the way you deploy them? I mean, for example, GPT-4 is not a single model. It's a, it's a, it's multiple models that kind of attack different parts of the problem. And just like, you know, Palm 2 is going to be multiple models instead of a single model. Gemini, you know, they're, that's the Google's next one. I'd be shocked if it weren't a family of models in some way, in the same way GPT-4 is. And so when we say like the, the wall and transformers from a, Pure technical perspective, if you just use what's existing today and, and try and expand out the, the context windows, like you could say that that's a wall. But in terms of what we're going to see in the actual wild, I feel like we're nowhere close to what's going to be, you know, what kind of performance we're going to get out of these things. Yeah. Summarizing that down, the answer is uh, it's not going to get boring. It's going to stay fast. And there's a lot of different ways that it could actually keep changing. It's going to get faster. It's going to get faster. It's, it's oh, going to get much faster. Excellent. Good. It's going to get much faster. Well, I would turn gray if I wasn't bald. So, you know, I guess I can't really lose much else from up top. But Lindley, we'll have to have you back because there's so much more to talk about here. I've never had so much fun tinkering with and learning about a new technology area in like recent memory. So like, that's why I think your work with Supervised makes a lot of sense. Why not niche down to something that is intellectually fascinating and commercially viable at the same time? How often does that happen? Not that often. So thanks for coming back on the show. And as a data point for folks out there listening, Lindley left Equity in September of 2018. Is that right? Yeah, something around there. Something around there, which was like roughly, I looked it up episode 92. And now we're on episode like, I don't know, 660 or something. So it's been too long. Welcome back. Yeah, well, you have to be uh, an idiot to go back into journalism, but look, here, here we are. <laughs> you and I are both dumb as hell because we like to write about stuff. And so this is what we do. Wouldn't trade it for the world. Lindley, just before we let you go and we close up today, where can folks find you on Twitter, URLs, just drop your stuff. So yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Matt Lindley. Uh, people still use Twitter anymore. You know, who, who the hell knows? But we're on pretty much every other platform. I love to talk to anyone and everyone. Please email me. You can find my email on my website. 
share with me however smart or dumb idea you have. I promise there are no stupid questions because I'm clearly answering these questions in the dumbest manner possible. Well, there, there's two types of, of work in science. There's uh, science and then there's explaining science to the public. And they both have a long history and they're very important. So don't don't talk down to yourself too much. Everybody, we got to go. Of course, Equity will be back on Friday. And in the meantime, we are on Twitter. You can find us under the handle Equity Pod and we'll see it disrupt. All right. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.